If you could open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 16 through 24. 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 24. Hear the word of the Lord. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. We ought also to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our hearts does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him. And because we keep his commandments, because we keep his commandments and do whatever pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his only son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that, we, that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. So let's look over at verse 16. By this we know that love, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So to understand the context of verse 16, we really got to back up a little bit and go back to verse 11. Verse 11 says, for this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So this, this whole section is really about love. The message that we've heard from the beginning, the message of Christianity, which is unchanging, is a message of love for one another. And then look down at verse 14. We know that we pass out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So love is an absolute, essential, fundamental, foundational aspect of Christianity. It's a test We'll talk about this a little bit more. A test of whether you have truly come to taste and see that the Lord is good. But the question is, and John turns here is, what does he mean by love? Or what does he define as love? Who gets to define love? Do you get to define love? Does the Christian culture define love? Is it whatever you feel like? Is that what love is, how you feel at the moment? What is love and who defines it. Well, our text says it's not how you feel. It's not Andover Baptist Church. It's not your Christian culture. It's not your parents. Not any of those things, but rather Christ is the one who defines love. That's what our text says. Christ defines it. By this we know love. Not by human opinion. Not by what you feel like. Not by the people you want to love, but Christ. It says, by this we know love. That he laid down his life for us And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If you want to find out what kind of love John is talking about, he says, look to the master, look to Christ. And that's the kind of love that I want you to have. This idea of taking our cues from Jesus is taught throughout the Bible. Such as Matthew chapter 10, verse 24 says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough or disciple to be like his teacher, and a servant to be like his master. 
And that's what the Christian life is about. The Christian life is about becoming more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We with unveiled faces are beholding his glory and going from one state of glory to another. The term Christian, oftentimes people think Christians, like some kind of old wise tale or something. Christian means little Christ. That's what they say, but actually it doesn't. Okay? Herodian doesn't mean little Herod. A Herodian is someone who is part of the party and the posse of Herod. So being a Christian means part of the posse, being part of association, being in the group of Christ. You are part of him. You are his disciple. And the goal of discipleship, which we've been talking about in Sunday school, is to become like the master. And so just as Jesus did, so should we. You ever seen those little wristbands or something? Apparently this was like really popular in the 60s. I wasn't alive in the 60s, so I'm just going to take it from you guys. But apparently in the 60s, this whole what would Jesus do mantra began. And you know what? There's not a lot good that came from the 60s, but this is good. Because that is to be our mantra. We are to be like him. What would Jesus do in this situation? If you ever find yourself in a situation where Jesus would not do that thing, then you probably are doing the wrong thing. We've got to make sure, though, it's actually what Jesus would do and not your imaginary pretend Jesus that you've made up in your mind. And we discover the real Jesus by his word. Another example where Jesus gives us this image of follow me, do what I do, is in John chapter 13. John chapter 13, one of the strangest incidents in the whole Bible. Here's what it says, John chapter 13, verse 12. And when Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer garments, he resumed his place and said, Do you understand what I have done to you? Very strange. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took off his outer garments, put on a cloth, essentially, put on a towel, and got down on his hands and knees and literally washed the feet of his disciples. Now, someone, I'm going to get caught up in this, but someone asked me once, why don't we foot wash? You know what I said? Because it's gross. That was one of the reasons. And they pointed out to me, it was gross back then. I never thought about that. But it was probably much grosser back then. Because their feet were actually nasty and disgusting, right? And our feet were just worried about, you know, maybe athlete's foot or something. I mean, it's just... It's not the same thing. But Jesus literally got on his hands and feet, bowed down before men, and washed their feet. He says, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to also wash each other's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now, this is the the part also that is just amazing afterward. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. It's not blessed if you know them, but if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If Jesus got down on his hands and his knees to wash people's feet, so should we. We should follow the example of Jesus and do as he has done. So in the context of our passage, what has Jesus done? He's showing us how he loved. And what did he do? Well, what Jesus did, how did he love, is that he laid his life down for his enemies. He laid his life down for those 
who despised him, those who hated him, those who were under his just condemnation and that deserved the wrath of God to be poured down upon them. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. We had a Wana. Hopefully some of you Wana kids know these verses. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So who did Christ die for? He died for the weak. He died for the ungodly. He died for the sinners. He died for the enemies. Right, that's who Christ died for. Now the question is this. Are you ungodly? Are you weak? Are you a sinner? Are you an enemy? Well, if you are, I have good news for you. Christ died for such people like this. You never have to wonder. You never have to exclude yourself. Not me. I'm not the kind of person Christ would die for. It's exactly the person that Christ would die for. A sinner just like you. Now, if you're reconciled, already, hallelujah, because you're no longer these things. But the fact is, Christ died for you even when you were like this. You do not have to merit his Righteousness, you don't have to earn his death. You don't have to show him, I'm really worth dying for. You were not worth dying for, but Christ died for you anyways, because that's the kind of love that we have. Christ died for his enemies. Christ died for the unlovely. Christ died for those who deserve nothing but death and destruction. That's the kind of love that Christ had. But look at our verse. Look what our verse tells us to do. Does our verse tell us to die for our enemies. Maybe there's some other verse in the Bible that says that. But does this verse, look at verse 16. Does verse 16, do you find the word enemy, sinner, ungodly, anything of the sort? No. Rather says, but we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Christ died for his enemies, and all he's asking you, at least in this verse, is to lay down your life for your friends. He died for his enemies. He just says, at least in this verse, just to lay down your life for your friends. Now, some of you might be saying, I'm looking at my Bible right here, and I don't see the word friend. You obviously have the King Jamie version, because the word friend ain't in there. You're right. The word brother is in there. It says we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Well, my response to this is a couplefold. Number one, in the Bible, there's a variety of different titles for believers. Believers are called saints. Believers are called children of God. Believers are called believers. Believers are called brothers. And interesting enough, believers are even called friends. Did you know that? In the Bible, believers are called friends. It's kind of ironic because sometimes I have an urban background, you know. And in the urban background, we call everybody brother. It's like, hey, what's up, bro? And then we just talk to each other, hey, brother. We do that all the time. And this actually gets me in trouble sometimes, because sometimes I'm evangelizing to Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses, and I slip up and call them brothers, right? But I don't mean it in a religious way. I just mean it in a friendly gesture of you're a human being in my house, and we're, cupping, we're sipping tea or whatnot. And so sometimes it's recommended, don't call them brother, but call them friend. But, but if you really want to be legalistic about this, that's not safe either, okay? There's none of that safe. Why? Because the Bible calls other believers friends. And I want you to see this. So open your Bible to 
Third John, third John, two books over. It's right over there. Don't flip too hard because you're going to skip it. It's so small. Third John, there's only one chapter, verse 15, the very last verse. Look at that verse. Look what it says. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. It's not a select group. It's not a hidden Facebook group that nobody can join. It's everybody. This is the description of believers. Believers are friends. Isn't that wonderful? Maybe we should do that. You know, hopefully after the sermon, maybe someone's going to say, hey, friend, if you do that, I'll be happy. At least do it in your heart. Hey, friend. Because that is what we are. We're not just this brotherhood. This brotherhood that doesn't mean anything. No, we're actually supposed to be like legit brothers and sisters who actually do love each other. When, as this passage, hey, friend, hey, comrade. No, no. Like legitimately. This is the relationship we're supposed to have. Is we're supposed to view each other as friends. As people we like. As people that we have a common fellowship. So, here's what I do when I combine these two verses. What I realize is this. Every brother is a friend, and every friend is a brother. Secondly, if you want to be contentious about the fact that our pastor does not explicitly say friends, but rather says brothers, I want you to think about this. What do they say? Water? Well, let me back that up. Blood is thicker than water. Really, the reality is that our text here is actually stronger. Friend is weaker than brother. Brother is a stronger relationship, and so if we should love our friends, how much more so should we love our brothers? This is what Christ is telling us. Christ died for his enemies, but all he tells you to do is to love your brothers, at least in this passage. Love your brothers. Love them. Be kind to them. Show them love. And this is found throughout the Bible. In 1 Peter 2.17, we kind of get this summary of the Christian life, Christian godliness. What does it look like? Honor everyone. Everybody. Right? Everybody means everybody. Honor everybody. Don't disrespect people. Don't be mean to people. Don't be nasty. Honor everybody. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is a good summary of Christian life. Honor everybody. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Well, Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. We should have a special love and affection for believers. We should love everybody, but we should have a special affection for those of us who are the called out one, those of us who are chosen, those of us who are going to the celestial city. Supposedly, I've never left the United States. It's kind of weird. I was an army brat. I didn't go out of the United States. I joined the army. I did not go out of the United States. Every time they tried to ship me, my wife kept them getting pregnant. It was great. So I said, no, I don't want to go. Even have a passport, I never left the country. But apparently, for you, some of you guys, have left the country, apparently there's something that happens when you go over the country and you see another American. Right? There's this, I hear, I hope it's true, this sense of brotherhood. Ah, oh, another American. Another one like me. Right? It doesn't matter. All the other little trite things of your East Coast, East West Coast, East from the South, you're from the North. Apparently that just all goes away. Right? And it's just another American. And there's a sense of being united in that American identity. Well, how much more so should we be united in our Christian identity? How much more so should we be united in the fact that we are all children of God in a world that hates us and the world that hates him? We should be very much united and connected in that reality, and we should love each other. Overlook. Love covers a multitude of sins. There's a whole bunch of faults, whole bunch of struggles, whole bunch of idiosyncratic behavior, but forget all that. Just love. Think about your parents. There's a whole bunch of weird things about them, too. 
So our kids don't listen to that. But the reality is, there's a whole bunch of things you got to overlook, right? In family relationships, in friendships, in siblings, same thing here. Just because we have faults, just because we have struggles, doesn't mean that we shouldn't love and we should love ourselves. We should express our faith through our labor of love, especially when it comes to the brotherhood. We should especially be thinking, I need to love the people of God. Now, so we have the first example of what this love looks like is it looks like Christ. It looks like Christ. If you ever think, I wonder if I'm doing too much. I wonder if I'm loving too much. Maybe some of you feel that way. I just pour myself out, and I don't get a thank you in return. Well, I think about the book of Hebrews that says, stop complaining. You haven't even suffered to the point of death. You haven't even shed any blood. What are you talking about? You just pour yourself out. Christ poured himself out. You're exaggerating. Right? You keep pouring yourself out until you die. Because that's what Christ did. The second way, though, that he tells us what this example of love looks like is in verse 17. Look at verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against them, how does God's love abide in him? Now, what I would summarize this verse, verse 17, is talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. Anyone can talk a big game. Anyone can say, I'm so tough. I'm Mike Tyson. Anybody step to me, I'll just knock him out. That's real easy to say. In fact, I remember an incident. I used to be an usher at the mall. It was one of my favorite jobs. I loved being an usher at the mall. Besides the fact they get paid nothing. But outside of that, it was actually a decent job. And I remember one time that I was at the front and I was ripping tickets. Ripping tickets, right? Let people in. Ripping tickets. Oh, that ticket's false. Get out. Ripping tickets, right? And I remember it was a busy Friday night and you saw all kinds of different people come through the mall. And I remember there was this thug guy. He was, he was a thug, obvious. That's not politically correct anymore. You're not supposed to be able to identify thugs. But I knew he was a thug. It's pretty obvious to me. And he was a thug guy and there was this country guy. He looked like a linebacker or something. He's just a big, stocky, tough, not really tough. He's just a country guy, right? I don't know if you've ever seen country strength. It looks different than thug strength. It's just different. So this thug, you know, he hits the country guy, just like hits him in the shoulder, right? Kind of like the thug him out, the bully him, say, hey, I'm, you, you know, get out of my way. And just to be mean. And so he hits him. And I remember the country guy just turns around and is like, he's like, what are you doing? Right? Why, why did you just bump me? And then there were started to be pre-fight indicators. Started to be pre-fight indicators that started happening. The thug guy started yanking his pants up. Now, by the way, if you ever see that, then something bad's probably going to happen. He starts yanking his pants up, and he starts talking and saying all these crazy words. And I remember the country guy just literally just picked him up, slammed him on the ground, and just started just taking him out. Right? And I have to admit, this is probably not holy for me to say, but I somewhat rejoice in this. Somewhat. Now, thankfully, this was shortly there broken up. But here's the point. That guy thought that he was so tough that he could just bully anybody. He could just do anything to anybody. And yet, when it came down to the mat, he had to be crying and desperately asking for some good Samaritan to get this guy off of him. Because it's real easy to talk. It's really easy to say how tough you are. But in reality... When you get into the mat, things might be a little bit different for you. Talk is cheap. The proof is in the pudding, as they say. A lot of people talk about how good they're at is this, how good they are, how much money they got. Look what kind of car I have. Look what kind of house I have. Look at all the money I got, right? 
And then the water heater breaks. And oh no, all of a sudden you realize you don't have any money. Because you can't afford it. How much money do you have in that situation? Talk is cheap. It's easy to say one thing, but something else is different. Jesus actually gave a parable about this in Luke chapter 14. He talks about a guy who thinks he's awesome. He thinks he's wonderful. He thinks he's amazing. He comes to the party and thinks, I'm number one, and comes right up to the best seat. You remember this? He comes all the way up to the best seat like, I am the maid of honor. I am the groomsman. Like, nobody would possibly think I'm anyone better than me. And then somebody more important than you come around, the actual groomsman, the actual maid of honor. Like, come on, get in the back. And he says, don't do that because then you'll be shamed. You'll be humiliated. Rather, get in the back and then the groom or the bride will come in and say, what are you doing back there? Come on up. Come on up. People are so self-deceived. People are so confused. Talk is cheap. People think, I love people. People think, I'm just like Christ. I'm very self-sacrificial. I pour myself out for all kinds of people. That's what people think. I'm a very loving person. Most people say that. Not about me. But people would say that in general. Say, I'm a very loving person. But the question is, is that really true? Who gets to define whether you're a really loving person? The Bible is the ultimate standard. Are you really self-sacrificial? Do you really pour yourselves out for others? Well, I would say if you do, here's a few ways that you could test that theory. Number one, for those who say, I'm very self-sacrificial, I'm a very loving person. First thing I would say is, let me see your calendar. Let me see your schedule. You say, what are you talking about? I'm not showing you my phone. Okay, maybe. Second thing I would say is, let me see your receipts. Let me see your calendar, let me see your receipts. Why am I saying that? Because I don't understand. What does that have to do anything? I love people. Why are you asking to see my calendar? Why are you asking to see my receipts? Why? Because I'm trying to figure out how you spend your time and your money. That's what I'm trying to discover. How do you spend your time and your money? Because if I get to find out where your time and your money is going, at least sometimes, I can fig- figure out where your heart is. Jesus said that. Where your treasure is, so will your heart be. It's very easy. Very, very easy to say I love people. And I pour myself on others. But talk can be very, very cheap. You say, I don't like this. This is America. You're not allowed to talk about money. Well, I'm just trying to exegete the text. Look at, look at verse 17 again. Hopefully you can see that this is actually not me talking. This is God's word. But if anyone has the world's goods, it's not a metaphor. It's not like some kind of something else. This is actually talking about money, right? Everybody see that? Nobody, we should be allegorizing the text. This is something else. No, this is money. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, this is actual real need when you have real money, yet he closes his heart against them. How does God's love abide in him? That's Jesus' words. That's, that's God's word, not mine. Love will cost you something. Love costs God something. Amen? He didn't just go around and say, I want to bless you, but I'm going to sit here and do nothing for you. I want to bless you, but good luck. No, he didn't. He saw us in need. And what did he do? He came down from heaven, incarnated as a man, lived a perfect life, allowed sinners like us to crucify him and die, earning a gift of propitiation, which he now says, propitiation is just a fancy word that means appeasement, earning a gift of forgiveness and said, if you will come and ask me, I will give this to you, whosoever you are. Come, believe, accept, be forgiven, be saved. He did not just sit there and watch us idly by as we were going to hell, but rather he intervened. He came in. He offers us a gift. He earned it. 
Love will cost us something. Love actually might cost us a lot of things. Love sure costs him a lot of things. What will love cost you? It will cost you your time. It will cost you your treasure. And it's going to cost you your talent. Don't tell people, don't even tell yourself that you love your brothers if you haven't given them any of your time, any of your talents, and any of your treasures. James put it this way, James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and is lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things that they need for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not work, is dead. Faith without works is dead. It's phony. You can say, I love God all you want. If you have no faith... If you have no works, you have no faith. Dead faith can't save you. Only living faith can save you. That's what it says. What good is that faith? Can that faith save him? No, it can't. Well, if dead faith can't save you, if dead faith is useless, what is dead love? It's just as equally useless. Dead faith does not exist. Dead love does not exist. Love is in action. Love is expressed. Right? Imagine a woman is being abused by a man over and over and over and over and over. And he keeps going back, I love you, I'm sorry, I love you, I'm sorry, I love you, I'm sorry. Eventually, hopefully, one of you ladies or one of you guys would eventually pull her aside and say, he doesn't love you. So how do you know that? Because of his actions. The way he's treating you is obvious that he does not love you. And if he does, I'll take hate because that's horrible. Get rid of him. Chuck him out. Because it's easy to say one thing, but the proof is still in the pudding. Just as faith without works is dead... So love, too, without works is dead. So do you love the brotherhood? Do you love people? Then prove it. Pull yourself out. Love people. If you see a need, don't ignore it. Do something. Help somebody in some way. You can do something. If you can do something, do something. Bless somebody. Acts chapter 20, verse 35 says, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Be a blessing. See a need, bless somebody. Now, I'm not talking about writing a blank check. But sometimes... Maybe love would cost you to write a blank check. But something, right? Something. Maybe give somebody a ride. Maybe give somebody advice. Maybe write a budget. Maybe write a resume. Just see a need and say, can I fulfill this need in any possible way? Sometimes you just maybe say something nice. Maybe just say something nice. See somebody down? Maybe just say something nice. Maybe just visit somebody. Just something. Do something. Love somebody. It's going to cost you something. The bottom line is this. If you see a need, fulfill it. Recognize Love can always be expressed with words, but we're not supposed to just express it in words. We're supposed to express it in action. Love in the heart should express itself in our feet. And that, isn't that exactly what 1 John 3.18, the very next verse says? Look at the very next verse. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Word and talk is nothing, but deed and truth is reality. Truly love somebody. There's really nothing else to be said about that. Love in true Deed and in truth, not simply in word and talk. So let's look at, let's finish out the passage. Let's look at verse 19 to 21. And by this we know that we have, that we are of the truth and will convince our conscience in his presence. That if our conscience condemns us, that God is greater than our conscience and knows all things. Dear friends, if our conscience does not condemn us, we have confidence in the presence of God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing to him. So what's the connection between verse 18 and 19? Well, at this point, I actually have to disagree with my beloved ESV. 
I'm like an ESV only. I love ESV. I use ESV all the time. I use other translations too, but I love ESV. But here I honestly think that they uh, should not have put a new paragraph between 18 and 19. Why? Because they're connected. Verse 18 and 19 are intimately connected. And I understand why they did that. It's because verse 19 goes with what comes after and then also connects with what comes before. But other translations often put verse 18 into verse 19 to make the connection clear. But the reality is, <clears throat> the thing that it's talking about in verse 19, and by this we know that we are in the truth, is by love. That's what we talked about. How do we know that we're in the truth? By this. What is this? By the love that he's just been talking about. We don't want to miss that connection. By this. By expressing our love for one another. By loving the brotherhood. By this we know that we are of the truth and convince our conscience in his presence. Now, I remember Pastor Neil once saying in this pulpit that a clear conscience is worth a lot of money. Maybe he didn't say it like that. But a clear conscience is good. It's a blessing. Isn't it good? Isn't it good to wake up in the, mirror, wake up in the morning and say, my conscience is not condemn me. I'm not doing anything wrong. You can go on my phone. You won't find anything. Doesn't that feel good? Doesn't it feel good not to live a double life? Not to wonder if somebody's going to catch you with all the skeletons in the closet. It's one thing to have skeletons in the closet from the past. It's another thing if you stuff it in skeletons in the present. Isn't it nice to be an honest person, to have a clear conscience? It is a wonderful and blessed thing, and I encourage you all, if you don't have one, to get one. It's real easy to get one. Repent of your sins that you currently have and stop doing future sins. Right? It's just that simple. You have a clear conscience. By stop sinning, repenting of those old sins, and not continuing on to do those same things. I'm not talking about being perfect. I'm just talking about having a clear conscience, right? To know that you aren't living a double life. And that's what this passage is talking about, having this clear conscience of knowing that you truly are a child of God. It's wonderful to just say, look, I know I love people. Not perfectly, but I know I love people, and I know I'm a child of God. That's a wonderful feeling. It's wonderful to be a child of God and to know that you're a child of God. It's scary, though, that a lot of people are not children of God and think they're children of God. They're self-deceived. That's the worst thing. It's much better to be a child of God and don't think you're a child of God than not to be a child of God and think you are. Right? But even better than all of that is to be a child of God and know that you're a child of God because you can look at your life and say, I see the fruit of the Spirit in my life. I know what I used to be, I know who I am, I know my imperfections, but God is working in me. And that's what verse 19 is talking about. Not only that, though, there's other benefits of knowing that you're a child of God, and not self-deceiving yourself, but actually knowing. And it talks about that in verse 21. No, excuse me, verse 22. And, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So one of the assurances of knowing you're a child of God by testing yourself and seeing if you have the fruit of the Spirit, which is principally expressed in loving others, is that you know that you and God have a good relationship, that you have fellowship with God, which allows you to approach Him in prayer, right? If you are ashamed of God, if you're running from God, if you don't want to go into His presence because you know that there's broken fellowship, that's horrible and terrible. Again, I exhort you to repent. Repent, turn back to Him. But if there isn't that reality, if you know that you and God are in fellowship, then you can go to him, and you know that if you ask him something, he will give it to you. There's something else about this. Did you know that a believer who's in sin, very well God might say, I'm not answering that prayer because of your sin? Did you know that? The Bible says that all the time. 
It says that if you mistreat your wife, your prayers will be hindered. It, there's a whole bunch of different various reasons, but they're all related to sin. If you sin, God might say, I would have given that to you, but I'm not, I'm not talking to you right now. I'm not going to answer that because you have sin in your life. And there's no blessing for me as long as you continue to sin. And that's how parents would operate too, right? Imagine that your child just slapped you. Boom. You can't believe it. You just can't believe it. You're just like, did this child just slap me? Yep, boom, they slapped you. And they say, mommy, can I have uh, 20 bucks? No. No, we got to talk about the slap. Well, maybe talk about the $20, but not give me $20 when you just slap me. And that's how we treat God. We slap him, boom. We sin against him and think, well, he's God. He can take it. God, can you help me in this other area? The answer very well might be no. We need to talk about what you've been doing in your sin life. When you fix that, you come back to me, you restore the relationship, then you will have your prayers answered. Again, if you wonder if that's true, look at verse 22 again. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Just talking about believers. Now, what if you don't have the benefit of a clear conscience? What if you have a guilty conscience? What if you're thinking, I don't know if I love people like I ought to? All of us feel that way in some ways, but... What if you have a guilty conscience? Well, I have good news for you, too. Look at verse 21. Actually, the end of verse 19, 19 and 20. By this we know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. So even if you have a guilty conscience, guess what? You still can be saved. Praise the Lord. Believers do struggle with salvation. Believers do say, I don't know if I pass these tests because I see a whole lot of sin in my life. Right? But that's where verse 20 comes in. Even if your heart condemns you, even if you have a guilty conscience, if you do, in fact, believe in God and trust in him and repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ and call upon his name, God is greater than your conscience. God will save you. You are saved, even if you don't know it, or even if you don't feel like it always. And praise be God. But I'm just exhorting you. Why live in verse 20 when you can live in verse 21? Why go around wondering if you're saved, feeling condemned, when you can feel the freedom of knowing you have a clear conscience and God is pleased with you. And that's what I want for all of you, is to have a clear conscience. Now let's wrap this up. <clears throat> Look at verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commands abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So, here we have a summary of the Christian life. Here it is. You want to know the Christian life? Very simple. Believe in a son. That's how you begin. That's how you remain. You can't be an unbeliever believer. It's not going to happen. You have to be a believer. You have to believe in Jesus Christ. That's how you start the journey to the celestial city. Amen? You can't begin getting off the path to hell until you begin to believe. And you stay on the path by continuing to believe. But while you're on this path, you're also called to love. That's the Christian life. Believe in Jesus, love God, love his people. That's what it says right there. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him. Jesus said very clearly, if you love me, you'll keep my anybody know? commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It doesn't say if you love me, you'll just keep saying the sinner's prayer over and over and believing that you're saved no matter what. No. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Very simple test. Now, if you think, I just can't. I just can't. You don't understand. I'm just, I just can't. I'm stuck in my sin. I'm a slave to sin. I can't give it up. Well, look at verse, the end, last verse here, verse 24. The very last part of it. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. 
Yes, you cannot free yourself from your sin. Yes, you may be stuck. You may fall. You may be in shackles. But where the Spirit is, there is freedom. You can't do it, but God's Spirit can. God is giving his Spirit, and by the Spirit, there is your victory. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But God says that if we have repented of our sins, he has given us his Spirit. And Romans chapter 8, verse 12 says, So then, brothers, we are not debtors to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if we live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit and put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. He has given you his spirit, and by the spirit you can overcome. This is how you can be free. This is how you can no longer be shackled. God has given you his spirit. And he says, he is a good father. He says, what kind of, you guys are evil. And if your children ask you for a bread or some fish, you won't give them a stone or a serpent, will you? How much more so will your heavenly father give you good gifts and in the Luke passage, it says, well, how much more so will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? You just got to go to him. Confess your sins. Cry out to him. Say, God, I'm a sinner. I need it. If you're not saved, that's how you get saved. God, I'm a sinner. I trust in you. Save the sinner like me. If you're, already, if you're a sinning saint, if you're already a saint, but you still struggle, God, I don't want to live in verse 20 anymore. I don't want to live with things I shouldn't be doing on my phone things I shouldn't be doing to other people. I don't want to live that way anymore. You don't have to. You can cry out to him. He can rescue you. He can redeem you. He can full, fill your heart with love so that you can get over to verse 21 and have confidence that you have fellowship with God, you're not condemned, that you're his son, and you're pleased with him. That's what God's will for your life is. Come join him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you for salvation. We thank you for your spirit. Lord, we thank you that your word tells us the truth. It does not allow us to hide in, hide in excuses, hide in Christian culture. It doesn't allow us to do any of those things, but rather it puts us face-to-face with the truth and calls us to account. Lord, we pray that your spirit would indwell us and fill us, help us to have a clear conscience, Lord, that we can live before you and live holy lives, and that we would actually love each other, Lord. And I thank you that so many saints here have loved me, and I see so much love here. And I would ask that they would continue to love and pour themselves out for others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.